Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76, where we help B2B manufacturers grow through revenue-focused marketing programs. On the surface, there are many forces driving movements around sustainable manufacturing in our world today. Some of those drivers come from government initiatives. Some come from consumers and what they demand from products. Some come from consumer product manufacturers, either in response to those consumer demands or because they truly want to do their part in all of this. But as my guest today will tell you, he believes that at the core of the sustainable manufacturing movement is simply the human drive to survive. And the fact that if we don't change the way we extract resources from the earth and return materials to the earth, we know deep down that we're all in trouble. Let me introduce him. Mark Remmert is the founding CEO of Green Dot Bioplastics, Inc., a leading manufacturer of bioplastic resins and plant-based biocomposites. Green Dot developed and commercialized the world's first biodegradable rubber as its initial product offering. And today, the company has a large offering of certified home and industrial compostable plastics for film, sheet, and molded products used in packaging and single-use disposable applications. Prior to Green Dot, Mark was the founding CEO of Styron Corporation, a $5 billion wholly owned subsidiary of Dow Chemical, and the world leader in its top two products, polystyrene and SB Latex. In total, Mark spent 30 years with Dow Chemical in a variety of technical, commercial, and business leadership roles in the United States, Europe, and Asia. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Yeah, it's great to have you here. We've known each other for a while, but it's it was good to get back in touch. It's been a geez, a few years since we had talked. So it was it was nice to reconnect a few weeks ago and kind of think about what we wanted to cover in this episode. I, I've always loved what you guys are doing at Green Dot. I think you're doing something important in the world and also have a really interesting business. So excited to have you on the show. Well, thanks again for the invitation. You bet. Well, Mark, I imagine that you'll get few arguments that sustainable manufacturing matters. But when push comes to shove, I also imagine that very few manufacturing leaders actually put it at the top of their list of priorities. So I'd love for you to start by maybe just offering your perspective on why sustainability is so important to the future of American manufacturing. Well, we have a, a statement or a philosophy or something, you might might call it that, that simply says, um, if you don't grow it, it's not truly sustainable. And if you think about that in a manufacturing context, you can see how far we really are from that today, where we use so many raw materials that are extracted from the earth, metals, components to make glass, plastics, whatnot. We extract hydrocarbons to make energy to run the manufacturing. And in many cases, we use the earth, unfortunately, as a dumping ground to get rid of all of our waste. So on both the front end and the back end, the processes that we use are not very renewable. 
and they're certainly not plant-based and that we're growing the feedstocks and the energy and so forth. So as much as we like to think we've made progress towards sustainability, if you take that very simple concept that if you don't grow it, it's not ultimately renewable and therefore not sustainable, you can see how far we have to go. And I'm certainly not saying that it's easy, but um, so much of our discussion in manufacturing about so-called sustainability the last number of years or even decades has really been more about efficiency. Things like lean manufacturing and Six Sigma and Kanban systems and so forth really designed to drive out waste and improve efficiency. And therefore, they do they do have some impact on sustainability, energy consumption, um, waste, things like that. But they're a long way from that other definition of sustainability. That other definition of sustainability would have to take into account things like a circular economy, where everything is accounted for coming into the manufacturing process and leaving the manufacturing process. It would have to incorporate zero waste concepts, not wasting raw materials, not wasting energy, not putting things in a landfill, no air or water discharge. It would certainly involve renewable energy. There's no way you can get to something called sustainable as long as we're using fossil fuels to drive the energy component. And finally, the similar ideas about air and water. We can't be permanently using water, especially groundwater, and then contaminating it and then putting it back into the system somewhere. So really lofty goals to get to that definition of sustainable manufacturing. But I think ultimately that's that's the direction that we have to go step by step, piece by piece, broken part by broken part. But that's that's the only way that we will that we will get there. Mark, what forces do you find are driving the sustainable manufacturing movement? Is it consumer driven? Is it investor driven? Or is it you know, requirements from big box stores that have sustainability requirements for the products they put on their shelves? Like where's it all coming from? I think there's components of all of those things. I think consumers are aware that they would like to have better products. Certainly companies want to tell better stories. There are regulations, there are government initiatives, NGO initiatives. But when I think about that, what what really is driving sustainability? If I can step back, because it seems like such a simple question and such an obvious set of answers. But I think at a higher level, it's it's actually much bigger than that. I think at the very core, it's the human drive to survive. I think humanity has realized that extinction is real. We talk about habitat loss, and we see that all the time. We think about it for animals, but with climate change and so forth, we're actually losing habitat for humans as well. Something like 60% of mammals' numbers have declined in the recent number of decades. I've seen estimates that, you know, several million species have been lost. So I think humans at some level realize that perhaps we could be next. And if we don't change our ways, um, it's just going to get more and more difficult to really survive on this earth. 
I think your your question is quite fascinating. I would love to come back a thousand years from now and see what happened. Uh, what did we learn? What did we change? So forth. I'd like to go back a thousand years from now and see what was life like really at a time when things were sustainable. Before the Industrial Revolution, I suppose the planet was mostly sustainable, right? I mean, energy came from human and animal power and, and so forth. But for the last couple hundred years with Industrial Revolution, we have just had an, an, a relentless attack on the planet and on the environment. Populations have soared. We have extracted anything we wanted to use as a resource, and we threw it away without much regard to what happened afterwards. But in the middle of last century, I think as humans, we began to see how unsustainable that was. And maybe at first we wanted to bury our heads in the sand and, you know, uh, some some simple fixes. But as early as World War II, we saw the effects of of radiation and really, really toxic kinds of pollution. We learned that toxins don't go away. I've seen the old posters. It's hard to imagine. But at one point in time, the EPA had a slogan that said, dilution is the solution to pollution. And, and therefore, if you want to get rid of something, just dilute it before you dump it in the, in the river or the lakes or whatever. Thinking back in the 60s and the 70s, I mean, we saw real events like the Cuyahoga River catching fire in, in Ohio because it was so polluted with, polluted with hydrocarbons. Uh, we nearly lost our national symbol, the bald eagle, because of DDT and use of uh, pretty toxic pesticides. Rachel uh, Carlson released her book, Silent Spring. I think it was in the 70s, so, you know, 50 years ago warning us about the effects of, of pollution. We've known about greenhouse gases and climate change since the 1980s. So we were getting feedback from the system for a long time that what we were doing couldn't go on like that forever. And then it began to affect humans. Uh, we saw places like Times Beach, where you live in Missouri, dioxin pollution and whole populations uprooted and and their community turned into a Superfund site. And similar with Hooker Chemical in New York and solvents, um, we began to hear about human uh, cancer clusters and so forth. And so we were getting the feedback then, but for whatever reason, you know, it's taken until the last 20 years, I think, for sustainability to really penetrate our hearts and our minds and our politics and our actions. And still not everybody is on board, but a very long answer to your question. But I, but I believe this sustainability thing is really driven by a human instinct that if we don't change our course, humans are not going to be here, be here forever. And maybe a lot of the rest of the plant animal world too. So a bit philosophical, but um, at the end of the day, if that's not what's driving it, if it's just simply a slogan or wanting to be able to put a label of something on a package, then, you know, this is going to be a pretty slow transition. But if we really believe it in our minds and our hearts and apply ourselves to the problem, then I, I think we can make a lot of progress on this in short order. Mark, I'd love to talk specifically about, so your corner of this sustainability world or bioplastics. Um, it's a term that 
many listening probably may not be super familiar with, if familiar at all. Um, just kind of tell us what bioplastics are. Yeah, bioplastics in, in their most you know simple definition are just making plastics out of plant-based renewable feedstocks instead of petroleum-based non-renewable feedstocks. So somehow taking uh, molecules that can be extracted from plants and turning them into polymers that can be used as as plastics. That chemistry, some of it is is actually not new. I mean, there have been plant-based polymers for, I don't know, 100 years or so. Some of the original things we called plastics were made from cellulosics, which are derived from trees. Some of the original films were made out of some kind of a nitrile compound that was derived from plants. But when oil was discovered and then, you know, hydrocarbons and, and refining and whatnot, petrochemicals became very, very cheap and, and also easy to work with from a, from a chemistry standpoint. So starting in the 1920s, we saw this proliferation of petroleum-derived uh, polymers. And, and still today, you know, 98% of the polymers in the world are, come from some kind of a fossil uh, carbon base, some kind of a, a petroleum carbon base. But the chemistry is, much of it is known. And you're now starting to see a resurgence of, of this kind of chemistry to use plant-based feedstocks instead of oil-based feedstocks. So um, it's, I always say this is an industry with a, you know, kind of a hundred year glide path here to scale up. It took, took more than a century to get to where we are today with petroleum based plastics and chemicals. And it'll probably take a century to turn that the other direction to replace all that with plant-based materials. But it's certainly, certainly doable over time and with much bigger scales. Are there preconceived notions about bioplastics, Mark, that you find yourself having to combat or asked another way? Are there myths you find yourself having to debunk about what's possible with bioplastic materials from a product design or manufacturing standpoint? Well, I think the biggest the biggest roadblock right now is cost, and that's not a myth. I mean, bioplastics are more expensive than traditional petrochemical plastics, but not because of the raw materials. The basic feedstocks used to make bioplastics, things like starches, sugars, carbohydrates, those kind of fundamental materials, you know, come from the ag economy. And they are also, you know, very, very widely used and available. And and on a per kilogram basis or per pound basis or whatever, uh, many of them are cheaper than refined oil products. But bioplastics are disadvantaged by the by the economy of scale. The plants that we're making these materials are, you know, a hundred or a thousand times smaller than their petrochemical counterparts. So it's still more expensive to make things in a smaller batch, if you will, or a smaller plant. But petrochemicals started out the same way. They didn't, they weren't from the beginning made on plants, uh, the scale that, that they are today. So that's not an insurmountable obstacle, but it, it will take years and decades to close that gap. The other, I guess you might call it a myth, I guess, is that plant-based plastics don't perform as well 
as a petroleum-based. But again, that's entirely dependent on the application, what what is performed well or you know how much performance do you need. Most bioplastics are, di- are targeted at, at single-use disposable packaging kind of applications. All of those things that we use for a few minutes or even a few seconds and throw them away. Everything from straws or cutlery to wraps to shopping bags to, you know, the the millions of applications where we literally use them just for a few minutes and then it's gone. Tear something open. Think of your recent delivery from Amazon. You tore open a wrapper to get inside of a box to tear open another wrapper to take something out and remove it from the bag. All of that packaging went either in, in recycle if it's cardboard or went went in the trash. That's really where bioplastics are targeted today. And packaging does account for almost 50% of all the plastic consumption in the world. So it is it is significant. Okay, let's take a quick break here. I want to let a couple of our strategists at Gorilla76 tell you about something pretty cool that we're doing right now for marketing folks in the manufacturing sector. Peyton and Brendan, take it away. So I'm Peyton Warren. And I'm Brendan Forrest. Twice a month, we host a live event called Industrial Marketing Live. Right now, we have a group of 50 plus industrial marketers from a variety of manufacturing organizations that meet up digitally to learn, ask questions, network, and get smarter. Every session has a designated topic. And one of our team members at Gorilla76 opens up by teaching for the first half hour or so. Topics have included how to do a better manufacturing webinar, getting started with paid social on LinkedIn, how to optimize your website for conversions, creating amazing video content, and so much more. After we break it down, we open it up to Q&A so we can help you apply all of this in your own businesses. This is pure value, no cost, no strings attached, no product or service pitches, just a 100% unadulterated learning experience. And on top of these live sessions, we've also opened up a Slack channel where attendees bounce ideas off each other and learn together between sessions. We're building a true community of manufacturing marketing professionals here. So if you or someone at your company has the word marketing in his or her job title, please consider telling them about it. They can visit industrialmarketinglive.com to register. We'd love to see you there. Are there any specific applications of bioplastic materials, Mark, that you find particularly interesting or people may not be thinking about and or even, you know, where these materials have created performance advantages that for products that uh, they've been used in? I mean, I can I can give you two examples. One just sort of real obvious, intuitive. I mean, another one that's maybe not. But take your last trip to the fast food restaurant. So you got a whole bunch of paper and plastic there, right? And so straws, utensils, drink lids. I mean, all of those things are made from plastic. Very few of those are compostable today. They're essentially not recyclable because there's no way to re- to separate all of that. And any plastic that's been contaminated with food or something is not, not allowed in the you know, in the recycle stream or whatever. So you've set in front of you there a bunch of plastic that you used for just five minutes or 10 minutes or however long it took you to, you know, choke down your fast food meal. And then that's immediately into the waste stream headed to the landfill or whatever. Contrast that, and then I'll come back to the fast food example, but contrast that with what we call mulch film. All the films you see lying on the ground in in places like California or Florida or someplace where they're growing strawberries, 
vegetables, and they put the mulch film down either to hold in moisture or sometimes they're fumigating underneath it or something like that. Today, today that mulch film is, is made out of polyethylene. And when the growing season is over, that has to be picked up um, out of the field. It is extremely hard to recycle because it's it's full of dirt and mud and plants and whatnot. Landfills don't want to take it, and the EPA won't allow you to burn it. So there are mountains of this this film that really doesn't have a good end-of-life solution for it. Now, imagine for a moment that that film was made out of a bioplastic, and it would biodegrade and compost at the end of its life. You then have an end-of-life opportunity to just disc that back under at the end of the growing season, and that film biodegrades and turns back into nutrients for the next, you know, next generation of plants. So that that's a case where biodegradability, compostability is a functional attribute that potentially saves people a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of aggravation. Um, it's more expensive up front, but there's some some definite definite upside there. And so play, applications like that are gaining traction pretty fast because there's a big upside. So now let's go back to the fast food restaurant. You just went over and you threw the bits of hamburger and french fries and stuff the kids didn't eat or dump their Coke on, you know, or whatever. Um, That's going into the trash and it's going into the trash with all of the plastic. Suppose all of that plastic in the bag that was holding all of the trash was all compostable. Instead of going to the landfill, all of that could go to the composting facility and you could compost the food waste right along with the uh, plastic that you used uh, while you're eating. And the server's uh, plastic disposable gloves could go in there and a whole bunch of packaging in the back of the restaurant that you don't see. Suddenly, this entire waste stream from the fast food restaurant becomes organic waste that's composted and can become fertilizer, if you will, for the next round of plants to grow to make more fast food for the restaurant. That That is another example of where uh, a compostable bioplastic can aid um, a much bigger ecosystem, this, this, this whole process of disposing of organic waste. And it's really important to understand that organic waste some people say it's 30% of what goes to the landfill. Some people say it's 50%, but it's a lot. It's a lot of what we put in the landfill. And today, when we put that in the landfill and it biodegrades anaerobically, it doesn't create CO2. It creates methane. That's why you see some landfills have those flares where they're burning off the methane. Well, methane is a much, much, much more powerful greenhouse gas than is CO2. I think it's at least 10 times more potent and long-lasting as CO2. So there's another example of where a bioplastic film in the form of a bag or a straw or whatever can enable a whole ecosystem that lends itself to this, what we call circular economy. So those are not hypotheticals. I mean, all of those things are occurring today. 
There are people making compostable straws. There are people making compostable cutlery. But because it's more expensive, because we have this real hit or miss system of composting around the country, some communities have it, some don't. Some it's regulated, some it's not. I mean, it's just a real patchwork of of uh, local systems. It's slow to be adopted because there are any number of speed bumps in the road. But day by day, step by step, city by city, restaurant by restaurant, you know, a lot of these these techniques are are being adopted. Yeah, you use some really great examples there, Mark. And how do you move like as you look ahead? To the future of sustainable manufacturing and product development and you know how do you move from patchwork to some kind of tipping point like i'm just curious from your perspective what what you see the outlook as or is it just going to be a slow moving ship i guess to turn i think there will be a tipping point but i, I don't know what it is and when it'll occur yeah it's frustrating honestly sitting in my shoes we always tell a joke that you know when henry ford invented the vehicle. He didn't have to design the interstate highway system, the toll booth, and the cup holder. And and yet in bioplastics, that's sort of what it feels like, that we have to have the answer for everything or people don't want to take a tiny move forward. And they want everything exactly the same as it is with traditional plastics and the same price and the same performance and the same everything else. I mean, that's that's just not possible. I mean, there's never been a new technology that came on where everything was exactly the same as the old technology, yet it's also improved. So at some point in time, there'll just be enough examples that people people will get it. I liken where bioplastics are today to where, you know, alternative energy was 40 years ago or whatever. I mean... People, all the naysayers about, you know, wind farms or whatever. I mean, you know, they'll fall down in a tornado or they're not going to last or they're way too expensive. Or, I mean, there's just a million stories of why we shouldn't do this. But somebody put one up and nothing bad happened. And then a whole wind farm went up. And, oh, by the way, every time one went up, they got cheaper. Um, And... Nobody 40 years ago said, let's never build another coal-fired power plant. That just wasn't part of the discussion. But today, um, you know, utilities are making that decision on their own that wind is cheaper, solar is cheaper, more expensive than coal, and a whole lot less less problems. And so what do we see? You know, wind farms going up everywhere, especially here in the Midwest. So it'll take time, but at some point, People don't think it's weird or strange or unproven, and you know we'll we'll get there. Now, in the last couple of weeks, there have been a couple of really major, I guess you'd call it political announcements that could really help the industry. Uh, President Biden, I think it was just two weeks ago, announced uh, a, a report from the White House Office of uh, Science and Technology Policy saying that within twenty years we need to eliminate. 90% of traditional petrochemical plastics and move that to bioplastics. The U.S. government has never had any policy about that, and there's never been anybody at that level to make such a big statement about bioplastics and replacing 
petroleum plastics. That's a super ambitious goal. I'm not sure how attainable that is right now, but still it it, it helps to have the most visible person on the planet step out there and say, hey, the U.S. is, is behind on this. Other company, other countries have moved much faster. Um, it's time we get we get going as well. And just a few minutes ago, before we connected here, uh, I saw an announcement from uh, the state of California looking at imposing a mandate of fifteen percent bioplastics and beverage bottles uh, by you know the next next few years or something like that. So. Government intervention always is is, a little, is can be a little bit heavy-handed, but you know it does get things moving in the right direction. So everybody, I think, is always a little bit nervous when when the government wades into an to an industry, what might happen. But on the other hand, these are big collective problems. No individual can really solve waste problems or pollution or landfills or whatever on their own. I mean that is a collective uh, collective activity that has to be led by something like a government i don't i don't know who else would would lead that so yeah we'll stay stay posted on what happens with with government initiatives and is that maybe the tipping point uh, could be i guess well sounds like some positive signs it's good to hear is there anything i didn't ask you about that you'd like to share with our audience moving away from bioplastics just back more broadly to um to manufacturing in general, I do think anybody that's in, in, involved in manufacturing today of anything, regardless, has to be thinking about some of these big high-level topics, things like zero waste. That's that's sort of a no-brainer. At some point, it's going to get too expensive, too inconvenient, too regulated to just send things to the landfill as a, as a part of your process. Um, and today, depending on what you're making, you you may be sending, you know, 20, 30% of what comes in your end gate. You may be sending it out the back as some kind of waste. So that I think is is paramount. Renewable energy, um, there's going to be more and more pressure from OEMs and brands and whatnot to want to use more renewable energy. I bought a six pack of fat tire beer the other day and it Claimed to be the first 100% renewable energy brewed beer or something like that. Uh, I don't remember exactly the words, but, you know, I mean, clearly they have a demographic and a consumer base that's really, really into that. But somebody at their company decided some number of years ago that they want to move in that direction. You can't just do that overnight. Carbon neutral, again, another topic that you know, everybody in manufacturing is going to be asked about what's your carbon footprint what look like? What's your energy source look like? We did our first ESG report last year and uh, and really started to dive into this. So the electricity that we buy off the grid, what's the source for that? How much of that is coming from renewable energy? We're lucky where we live, our, our, our utility here, about 50% of their total grid is renewable energy. So it it clearly lowers, you know, in a way our carbon footprint as well. Greenhouse gas emissions and toxicity related concerns are going to be there forever and and more and more of them related to chemicals and plastics. The, the next one up now is 
these these PFAS materials. Uh, they call them the forever chemicals, the fluorinated uh, hydrocarbons that seem to never go away. Many, many, many disposable plates and bowls and cups have a PFAS coating on them. Well, at some point, your customers are going to ask about that. And, you know, I'm sure there's many, many other examples of companies using those materials. So manufacturing has never been easy, but with all of the overlay of social, environmental, governmental, regulatory concerns, you know, I I don't see any of that abating. And, uh, you know, the, the smart manufacturers will stay on top of that and try to stay out in front of it. It is, after all, a competitive advantage. If you can have cheaper energy or less waste, uh, less less disposal, whatever, I mean, that is an advantage for your for your company. So I think those are beyond just nice to do or tell a good story. I mean, I think it's a critical part of every company's mandate. I love your message, Mark. I really enjoyed the conversation today. Can you tell our audience how they can get in touch with you and also where they can learn more about what you're doing at Green Dot? We are a Kansas-based company. If you go to our website, green.bioplastics.com, um, you'll see our headquarters and uh, phone numbers and addresses. Uh, we're easy to get a hold of, especially uh, anybody wants to take a look at bioplastics for a certain application or something. We'd be happy to talk about that. Fantastic. Well, Mark, really appreciate you doing this today. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. See you, Joe. Bet. As for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of The Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to The Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.